0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the ancient philosophy of Stoicism, based off the writings of people like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, is enjoying newfound popularity. So could reading the Stoics' writings lead to a better life? The key is
1: to be free of passions, yes, but full of love. So it's it's not that the Stoics feel nothing. It's that they try not to be ruled by anger or fear or doubt or jealousy or lust, any of these sort of toxic emotions that, you know, that lead us to a dark place. And later, what does
0: Stoic philosophy say about raising kids?
2: Parents get sucked into the ecosphere where it's all about how does this parenting choice look to other people? And they become very fixated on other people's opinions, which in Stoic philosophy is not important at all. What's important is developing your own character.
0: Using Old Roman Wisdom to Lead a Good Modern Life Ahead on Life Examined. Ancient Stoic wisdom is having an unexpected modern day resurgence. Whether it's daily Instagram quotes, blogs, or good old fashioned books, the writings of Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and Epictetus are today enjoying something of a comeback and their appeal is wide, including entrepreneurs, hipsters, sports figures, and even parents. So what's their appeal? In essence, the message of Stoicism is to focus less on the externals and more on the internal. In other words, we need to focus less on what we cannot change in our lives and more on cultivating our own virtues. In his books like The Daily Stoic and Ego is the Enemy, Author and renowned modern-day Stoic, Ryan Holiday, sheds light on the lives of the ancient Roman sages. He also explains why, in times of hardship and trial, their philosophy resonates just as much today as it did over 2,000 years ago. Well, Ryan Holiday, welcome to KCRW's Life Examines. We appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Take us on a short journey of of the Stoics. And I know Marcus Aurelius is the one that comes up uh, most commonly. Why, why is he someone that has grabbed your attention as somebody that you think we need to know about?
1: Well, when I talk to audiences that don't know anything about philosophy, I, I say, you know, the old guy in the movie Gladiator, that's Marcus Aurelius. Right. The emperor of Rome, the most powerful man in the world, was a philosopher. And it was philosophy that guided him as the Emperor. But you go back many hundreds of years, the origin of Stoicism as a, as a philosophy begins with a guy named Zeno, who is a merchant. He suffers, he loses everything in a shipwreck, and he washes up in Athens. And it's actually in a bookstore that he, that he comes upon sort of the writings of, of, of the philosophers and and creates a school known as Stoicism. And in between, you know, Zeno and Marcus Aurelius, I like the sort of Z to A-ness of it. Um, but But in between there, you have Stoics who are politicians, you have Stoics who are generals, you have Stoics who are playwrights, you have you know, Stoics who, who are real people in the real world struggling to do what we're all struggling to do, which is, you know, uh, control our tempers, control our urges, you know, navigate stress, navigate fear. And, and most of all, and, and every Stoic who was ever born died, uh, you know, every Stoic is struggling with the reality of our mortality. So Stoicism is really a philosophy, I think, that's designed to help you live a good life, And hopefully die a good death.
0: Mm. And where does the actual word stoic come from? And we use it today in such a way of, oh, you're so stoic, you're so unemotional, you're so unaffected. But how did that term become so associated with these great minds?
1: Stoicism starts in in the Athenian agora uh, on on a stoa. Stoa just means porch. So it's a. Mm. I, I think it's fitting that stoicism, uh, this sort of practical, down to earth philosophy, would begin on on a guy's porch. Um, but that that's all that stoic means. It's it's funny, you know. Stoicism, what we call lowercase stoicism, the word stoic in English means has no emotions, and that's about as far from the the truth of the philosophy as you know. Epicureanism and hedonism uh, Have to do with each other It's just a weird quirk Of how the language has developed But stoicism as a philosophy Has really nothing to do With this idea of like Stuff your emotions down Be affected by nothing Feel nothing Be a robot That's that's not what the stoics talk about. In fact, one of the most beautiful passion, uh, beautiful passages in Marcus Aurelius, he says he learns from one of his philosophical mentors that the key is to be free of passions, yes, but full of love. So it's it's not that the stoics feel nothing. It's that they try not to be ruled by anger or fear or or doubt or you know any of the jealousy or lust, any of these sort of toxic emotions that, uh, you know, that lead us to a dark place, they, they want to feel love and acceptance and gratitude and, and, and positive emotions that, that, you know, are primarily, you know, in one's control. Hmm. Well, let, let's jump
0: into Marcus Aurelius a bit more here. Who was he and, and how does he kind of set the stage for some of these really important ideas?
1: It's one of the most incredible stories in history, you know, sort of without precedent. You know, when you hear, okay, he's the emperor, so you go, oh, so his father was emperor. In fact, no, Marcus Aurelius is born to a noble family, but the emperor Hadrian, who's two emperors before Marcus Aurelius, um, does not have an heir, And, and he sees something in this young child, he sees some bit of promise. And he sets up a secession a plan where, where Marcus is adopted by an older man named Antoninus Pius, who in turn is ado- adopted by Hadrian. So Marcus is one of the only emperors in history who's chosen to be emperor mm. and chosen from a very young age. And he's sort of put through this sort of philosophical boot camp that teaches him stoicism and philosophy and the law and and primes him for the highest office in the land and it's a it's an incredible story because you know we have this saying you know absolute power corrupts absolutely marcus aurelius is not only not corrupted by power it's one of the few examples we have where someone seems to have become better for the power that was foisted upon them and you can contrast marcus with you know Nero or, or any of his predecessors, who, you know, who becoming emperor was absolutely the worst thing that happened to them and to their country.
0: Hmm. What defines his philosophy and, and the way that he put that into practice?
1: Yeah, I, I think my, my sort of working definition of stoicism, and people are not acquainted with it, is this idea of we don't control what happens, but we control how we respond. And so there's a beautiful passage that Marcus writes to himself in the middle of the Antonine Plague, a, a terrible pandemic. I um, mean, he says, he says, it's unfortunate that this happened. And then he corrects himself. He goes, no, it's fortunate that this happened to me. He says, not everyone would have been able to survive it the way that I am. Not everyone would have been able to do what I'm able to do with it. And to me, that really encapsulates who Marcus Aurelius is. My, my book, The Obstacle is the Way is based on an, another observation from Marcus, where he says, you know, what stands in the way becomes the way. The impediment to action advances action. The point being, to Marcus and to all the Stoics, What life threw at us, throws at us, is fuel for us. The obstacles that we face are the opportunities that we have to rise to the occasion, to exhibit our philosophical principles, to become better people. So I think if, if you're trying to get to the core of who Marcus Aurelius is, it's even as the emperor, he understands there's so many things that he's powerless over, and when he, he wants to focus all of his energy on responding well to the situations that life puts in front of him.
0: Yeah, and there's something really important here about perspective and mindset. I mean, as I read some of the Stoics, I, I couldn't help think of the things like the serenity prayer, to accept the things I cannot change, and the courage to change the things I can. I mean, this is, I think, a really important idea that's, that's
1: traveled for thousands of years. Well, Epictetus is, from what we understand, sort of the inspiration of the serenity prayer i think people would be surprised to know that the serenity prayer was was written in like the 1930s or the 1940s i mean it's relatively new but epictetus a, a slave so you have marcus aurelius who's you know incredibly privileged and power powerful then you have, Mar- you have Epictetus who is a slave in Nero's court. Um, so as about, about as powerless as one can, can be, even walks with a limp for, from, a, from a beating he received from one of his, his masters. But Epictetus says our chief task in life, the main thing is to determine what is up to us and what is not up to us. And you know, first and foremost, our thoughts, our opinions, our decisions, uh, our beliefs, this is what's up to us, and everything else is sort of an external, other people, other people's opinions, that's all on them, and so the stoic tries to focus inwardly on what they control and then sort of radiates that outwards.
0: Mm. This insight here is fascinating because um, as somebody who who works and studies a lot of psychology, this would become, I mean, anybody that goes to see a therapist, this is the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is that We need to look at at patterns of thoughts, understanding things that we cannot control, and, um, I mean, we see this play out in psychology every day.
1: Yeah, Albert Ellis, one of the pioneers of cognitive behavioral therapy, sort of credits Epictetus and the Stoics with this idea, and I think the other idea from Epictetus is interesting. He says, it's not things that upset us, it's our judgment about things. A few years ago, I gave a talk to the Pittsburgh Pirates at their spring training mm. in Bradenton, Florida, and they had this quote on the wall. It wasn't credited to Epictetus. They didn't know, but it just said, it's not things that upset us, it's our opinion about things. Um, but that really is the core sort of breakthrough of, so- of of psychology, of Stoicism. It's really a core principle of Buddhism and most sort of philosophical schools, which is that... You know just because we feel something about something just because we think something about something doesn't mean that it's actually true and the ability to sort of question our own thoughts and to disrupt those patterns is really for the Stokes it was about getting to this place of, of ataraxia and ataraxia is just the idea of sort of being free of disturbance being free of sort of misery not being at the whim of external things and a key way to get there is to, is to realize look this thing that i 'm upset about is not up to me. i don't control what my parents do i don't control what this driver in front of me in traffic is doing i don 't control the weather i don't control the economy i don 't control this pandemic, but I control the choices that I make in response to that and I, I you know I control the person i 'm going to be within this larger thing that i 'm powerless over. And my question
0: about this, and and I wonder how Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius would respond to something like this, how therefore do we not just feel completely powerless to things about, say, social justice? Um, Because one can also say, if you were a black man in the South uh, saying, well, the system is too big, I can't rise against oppression, or a woman being held down. How would Stoics kind of face some of those larger dilemmas in which we see an oppressor and, and feel that we ourselves
1: can't control it, therefore we should do nothing? I think this is a a, a misunderstanding of Stoicism on par with the idea of, you know, lowercase Stoicism, you know, being an absence of emotions. The Stoics hold four virtues—courage, wisdom, self-discipline, and justice. And I think those two virtues, the the first and the last one, are are key to what you're talking Mm. about—courage, and justice. So Marcus Aurelius even says in meditations, he reminds himself, look, remember, you can commit an injustice by doing nothing. The idea that the Stoics were somehow apathetic to uh, political concerns is just historically not correct. Mm -hmm. I mean, First off, we have Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. We have Seneca, the senator, and consul. We have uh, Cato, the senator. Um, it, there were Stoics who were diplomats and advisors and teachers and and, and activists and, and generals and, and involved in every aspect of Roman life. But more importantly... Um, the, the primary sort of philosophical school that influences the founders of the American Revolution, it's it's Stoicism. Jefferson dies with a copy of, of Seneca on his nightstand. Hmm. Uh, George Washington is introduced to the Stoics at 16 years old. Uh, Thomas Went- Wentworth Higginson, a translator of Epictetus, is the first leader of a black regiment in the United States Civil War? Um, the Stoics have always been involved politically, civically. Um, might, might you know? You uh, you look back and you, you're sort of appalled at the norms and the, the the institutions that the Romans tolerated, from you know their version of slavery to the persecution of various religious groups. Of course, they're they're products of their time, but. The idea that the Stoics simply accept uh, the world around them and make no change is missing the point. Some things are up to us and some things are not up to us, but we do have the ability to be involved politically, to lead, to, to come together and do things as a group. So. I think it's a, it, it can certainly appear on paper uh, as, a, as a rationalization for going, oh, I don't care, people are starving in Africa, or what do I care? I, you know, I don't live in that state, or you know my job hasn't been affected by the, by the pandemic, or you know, whatever sort of excuse one wants to make for, for uh, indifference. Um, but I think that the long track record of the Stoics, not just being involved, but actually separating themselves From Seneca writes, you know, the Epicurean says, I will not be involved in politics unless I have to. Um, He says, the Stoic says, I will be involved in politics unless something prevents me from doing so. Mm. So I think core to the Stoic idea is contributing to the the state, the world, the universe. And Marcus Aurelius expresses, even as he's the emperor of Rome, he talks about this idea of cosmopolitanism. He says, "I'm a citizen of the world; um, that we're all part of this larger whole." So, I think I think the Stoics will surprise people who are look who are going and have an open mind about what our role is as as human beings and and philosophers.
0: Mm. Yeah, and, and I know one thing about the Stoics is that the highest good for them is this no is this notion of virtue, which is something mm-hmm. we also see in a lot of Greek philosophy as well, on Aristotle, things like that, and. So So um, can you tell us more about, for them, what virtue really
1: means? Marcus says in meditations, he says, you know, the fruit of this life is good character and acts for the common good. We were talking about the sort of the four Stoic virtues. I think it's tricky for people. They hear virtue, and then they think sort of religious virtue. So they have this sort of Christian connotation. Um, The cardinal virtues, that word cardinal comes from uh, cardos, the Latin word for hinge, the idea that sort of everything hinges on virtue. Um, but but virtue isn't one thing. It's those four things. Virtue to the Stoics was courage, self-discipline, justice, and wisdom. And those things interplay with each other. But I think where they interplay is sort of what are our obligations to ourselves, to our fellow human beings, to the world that we happen to live in? Um, and, and how can we respond to everything that we face as as an opportunity for virtue? So 2020 has been a hell of a year mm-hmm. for all of us, but the Stokes would say within that adversity, there is the chance to exhibit virtue. Maybe not the one we thought, in January 2020 that the year might call for us just like I'm sure there were there were many of us who went into 2021 thinking okay this is going to be a year of rebuilding this is going to be a year of of, uh, <laughs> right, right. of, of you know getting back on track and then you know here in America we're faced with a, a, a violent insurrection and a failed coup and and it that is whether you're a politician or a citizen or a business owner um, you know that is calling upon you to exhibit one of these virtues and and and, you know, if you fail to do that, the Stoics would say you're not living up to the philosophy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know that's huge. And I think it's why a lot of people feel called to Stoicism, is this idea of turning obstacle into fire and flame or amor fati. Th- this, this idea that um, we do need to rise up and that we can't just see obstacles as things that hold us down, but things to be overcome,
1: yeah, you know, there's that Chinese expression, may you live in interesting times. It probably says something about the state of the world, that mm. that stoicism is is resurgent, uh, just as it was in, you know, the Civil War, or the American Revolution, or the decline and fall of Rome. Stoicism is a philosophy that works best in difficult times. Um, but But the truth is, you know, Murphy's law is real. You know, what can go wrong will. We are constantly dealing with you know, difficulty, uh, setbacks, uh, you know, uh, unexpected disasters. And so we have to come up with a way where these things make us better. Uh, and, and the idea of amor fati, which comes to us from Nietzsche, uh, is, is, I think, a really core stoic concept. Marcus says, you know, what is thrown on top of the fire is fuel for the fire. Uh, you, you know, he says, a stomach digests what it eats. A fire turns everything into flame and brightness. That's what we're trying to cultivate as Stoics. Can you talk a little
0: bit about, about Seneca, another really important uh, person in this conversation? And, and I, I love he wrote something about uh, keeping your expectations pretty timid or low, which I think is kind of fascinating. Can, can you kind of introduce us to him and some ideas? Of,
1: of all the Stoic figures that, that might sort of fit seamlessly into the modern world, Seneca is it. You know, Seneca is wealthy. Seneca is brilliant. Seneca is funny. Seneca wants to live the good life. He's also this student of, of philosophy. But he, and, and on top of that, he's incredibly ambitious. And so he finds himself at, at late in life as the advisor to the, to the young emperor, uh, this, this kid named Nero. And, you know, Nero begins to show himself as unstable. You know, Seneca ends up walking the same tightrope that many members of the Trump administration have struggled with. You mm. know, a- am, I, am I complicit? Or am I preventing things from getting worse? Am I doing this out of self-interest? Or am I doing this out of selflessness? You know, uh, and, and so Seneca is a fascinating figure in that he, he writes eloquently and beautifully and then struggles as a real human being to navigate you know, uh, the situations that he finds himself in. I think Seneca's most beautiful writings come to us on the subject of mortality. Mm. There's a recent translation by James Rom Seneca's writings, just called How to Die, because more than anything, Seneca thought about time and mortality and the fragility of life, and also lived those ideas.
0: He really wrote a lot about uh,
1: meditating on the fact that, that we may die. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, famously is, is forced to commit suicide uh, by Nero. And it's very clear that he had practiced for this moment, that he knew that it was coming. I think the, 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 the thing that I think about most from Seneca when it comes to mortality, it sort of shifted how I try to go through life. He says, you know, it's wrong to think of death as something that exists in the future that we're moving towards. All, he says all time that passes belongs to death um, and mm. that we're dying every day. And so don't think like, hey, you've got X number of years to live. He says, think that you've died however many years you've already been alive. And so, you know, Seneca prompts us to, to not take this moment for granted. He has an essay called On the Shortness of Life. And he says, it's not that life is short, it's that we waste a lot of it. And I think these are questions that were urgent in, you know, uh, in Nero's time, but they're, they're just as relevant in, in the year 2021. Yeah, and I think we could spend a whole show talking
0: about Seneca as well. But to get back to Marcus Aurelius, our original thinker here, and talking about relevancy to 2021, he was the emperor during the massive Antonine Plague, right?
1: I, it's, I'll, I'll give you this. So every, every day we, we we post a, a Stoic quote on, on the Daily Stoic Instagram. And uh, a few weeks ago, I posted just a list of things that Marcus Aurelius did during the Antonine Plague. He puts uh, the, the foremost medical expert of his time, Galen, in charge of the response. He forgives debts. He sells the palace furnishings to pay down Rome's debts. He weeps for the victims uh, who have died. He refuses to flee Rome and sort of leave it to be somebody else's problem. Uh, he e- Even when he eventually succumbs to the pandemic, which is what we think happens, he says uh, his friends are crying and he says, No, don't weep for me. He says, think about the people who have lost and think about your own mortality. All of which is to say, you can imagine that certain... members of uh, certain political uh, parties found this list mm-hmm. to be a, a, a an indictment of how the coronavirus response has been. And I think what you see in Marcus Aurelius is what real leadership looks like. When When the system broke down, Marcus stood up and he led and he did what a Stoic is obligated to do, which is to put other people before him, which is to make hard decisions, which is to Seek and listen to advice and to and to not be scared or intimidated by. You know the 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 reality and the fragility of existence.
0: No, yeah, there's there's a lot of lessons from him for sure. And and I think what's interesting to me about Stoicism is that there are all these different insights. Whether it's about um, how we understand the things we can control versus not control. Um, whether it's meditating on death. Whether it's uh, lots of different things. And, and I wonder. I mean, do you think of it as kind of a cohesive philosophy that that you, that you can kind of package up and and tell someone this is how to live, or or kind of just various insights on on what makes us human.
1: Yeah. uh, One of the criticisms of Stoicism is that it's somehow not a comprehensive philosophy. It doesn't lay out some theory of the universe. It doesn't have a bunch of explicit rules, you know, ranked in Mm -hmm. priority as to what's important. Perhaps Stoicism was that in the ancient world. Only a fraction of it survives. We just really have these sort of fragments and, and loose collections, even meditations. Marcus Aurelius was writing for himself, not for public consumption. So, how much of it was incomplete and how much of, of, of it is just our, our picture is incomplete, we don't know. But I think that's actually what's so beautiful about stoicism. You can pick it up. Uh, and you know, Marcus says, we never step in the same river twice. When you pick up meditations, for for the last 15 years I've been reading meditations, and it really wasn't until last year that it truly struck me that he was writing during a pandemic because that was so far from my experience, right? I, I mean, I didn't, it didn't have any real resonance with me when he says, you know, look, he says, a plague can take your life. But the true pestilence to be worried about is the one that affects your character. And, and you know, obviously you read that and you, you think that he's being figurative. And then, then you watch Americans refuse to wear masks, you know, refuse to socially distance, um, to, to fall prey to conspiracy theories that, that, that harm themselves and other people. And you realize, oh... Marcus may have been experiencing exactly what I'm experiencing right now, and that his wisdom was both literal and figurative. And I, I think that's just one of the real profound beauties of of how the philosophy is set up.
0: It's really it's really interesting as you say that. Uh, I, I know that the Stoics and a lot, you know, this is this runs through all of the world's religions, which is which is really being critical of the ego and the self. Mm-hmm. And it's tricky, I think, as we've watched uh, in this country, a lot of people kind of value um, what might be uh, their own personhood or personal rights over the sense of a community. And I'm sure the Stoics would have something to say about that.
1: Yeah, several years ago, I wrote a book largely out of my experiences at American Apparel called Ego is the Enemy. And the idea of putting yourself first is, I think, anathema to the Stoic Mentality, Marcus says, you know what's good for the hive is good for the bee. I think masks have been a great example of that. It's 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 at first, you know, they said wear wear the masks. It's good. Uh, it, it, it it helps other people, right? It's not for you. It helps other people. And people really struggled with that, the idea of doing something to which you get no benefit, uh, but, but that if collectively we all do it, we're all better for it. And, and I think some people intuitively got that and other people found that really difficult to wrap their head around. I think it's been interesting, and I think uh, uh, sort of illustrates a stoic idea that as time went on, the data has now come around and said, actually, hey, it, it not only protects you, but if you do get it, 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 it you get a, a less bad version of the virus. So, so there actually is a reward for helping other people. The idea of what's good for the hive is good for the bee. Um, and, 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 you know, for the Stoics, you do the right thing because it's the right thing, because it's factual, because it helps other people, that it may benefit you indirectly as extra. But I just think... You watched really. You watched people whose ego was sort of central to who they were struggle not just with doing the right thing, but even struggle with the appearances. I I'm, I, I go back to that moment. I think the second debate where Trump is mocking now President Elect Biden for wearing a mask and looking silly, and moments later, you know, literally moments later. Uh, Trump comes down with, with COVID-19 and it nearly kills him. So the the idea for the Stoics of of not caring what people think and focusing on what's right and what's true uh, is, is advice that has stood up quite well in 2021.
0: Mm. Do you think there's a fair feminine critique that, you know, we're primarily talking a lot about men here, three men in particular, white men, two of which were extremely wealthy and in positions of power, and kind of where were the female voices in the Stoic movement?
1: Yes, so my book Lives of the Stoics, this was something I really thought about. I wanted to sort of show who the Stoics were, uh, and I didn't want it to be all white men, and and so I, I dedicate a chapter to Portia Cato, who's the daughter of Cato, one of the sort of towering Roman Stoics, who's integral in the assassination of Julius Caesar and sort of lives these philosophical principles. But, but Epictetus's teacher, Musonius Rufus, is centuries ahead of his time when he, when he, when he says that uh, men and women should both be taught philosophy. He says, virtue has nothing to do with gender. He says, look, like if you have a hunting dog or you have a racing horse, you don't care what gender it is. Mm. You just care whether it can do the job. And and so for the Stoics they were remarkably early. Of course, they were also the victim of, you know, the the preconceptions of their time and, and you see in the Stoics, you know, the idea of manly and feminine, you know, often referring to positive and negative things and, and, and there there's certainly updates and changes we need to make but you know, I would I would say 50% of my readers are women. Um Ariana Huffington carries a quote of Marcus Aurelius in her wallet everywhere that she goes. There are there are numerous female stoics. Um Camilla Cabejo the the musician is a, is an avid student of of uh, of stoicism. There 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 just because historically it was a man's world, I don't think means that these ideas are only masculine. And, you know, our, our discussion about ego, I will say writing a book about, you know, the perils of ego, the man's world thing holds true there as well, right? Most of the, the, the catastrophic example of ego is, is male. And, and so there's plenty to learn from, from the, the people who are not represented well enough in history.
2: Mm.
0: I think it's interesting having this conversation between the two of us. I take it we're both in our 30s, kind of in this, this elder millennial generation, something like that. And what we see around us is, is kind of a breakdown of organized religion and the number of people dropping out of the, the pews pretty quickly right now. And as a result, looking for something to hold on to. Um, and, and in many cases, it can be you know cherry-picking from different philosophies or different religions. And I wonder if you've thought about that in the context of the work that you're doing, Stoicism trying to provide some kind of a grounding for people existentially to hold onto, and maybe would that explain why it's become so popular
1: right now? I, th- I think organized religion did itself in the world a massive disservice when it decided to focus... Uh, not on the betterment of the lives of its parishioners, but primarily on a bunch of divisive sort of social culture war issues. So, so you, as they have steadily driven generation after generation out of the church, people are now looking for the things that organized religion was designed to give. I mean, the questions that we're asking ourselves: How do I live? What does it mean to be a good person? How do I control my temper? What happens to me when I die? These are questions that humans have always asked and and always had, and people are looking for answers. And I think why I like to point people to philosophy is that instead of making an argument from fear, right? If you don't do this, uh, when you die, you will go to hell. I like the argument of philosophy, which is like, if you don't do this, if you don't live well, if you don't sort of prize rationality and truth, you will live in hell, you will be unhappy and your life will be hellish. To me, that's the argument that Stoicism makes. Well, Ryan Holiday, we
0: really appreciate the time. Thanks for for telling us about the Stoics today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Once again, that was Ryan Holiday. He's a media columnist and author of a number of books on Stoicism, including The Daily Stoic and, most recently, Lives of the Stoics. Still to come, are you stressing about raising your kids, especially during COVID? Our next guest says embracing a stoic philosophy might well be an antidote for the helicopter parent. Join us after a short break. This is Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled. We just heard from Ryan Holiday, an expert on Stoic philosophy and author of several books, including most recently, Lives of the Stoics, about how the Stoics played a part in American history, influencing both George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, and providing wisdom in difficult times. Today, parents are embracing the same philosophy to help navigate some of the tough challenges of raising a child, especially during the pandemic. So how can this philosophy help children develop character and individuality? Can parents find a balance between protecting their children and letting them go? Meredith alexander Coons is the author of The Stoic Mom, a blog that focuses on how stoic philosophy and mindful approaches can change a parent's life. She's also a mom to two teenage daughters. Well, Meredith alexander Coons, welcome to Life Examined.
2: Thank you for having
0: me. Can you talk about some of the major mistakes that you think parents today make and where stoicism has helped to guide you?
2: Sure. Um, First of all, I think there's a lot of pressure on parents today. Um, First of all, I would say parenting is an exercise in losing control because Mm. even when I first became pregnant, I didn't really have control over what my body was doing. And then when my kids were born, there were these you know, unpredictable beings. And like many parents, I thought, well, surely I can manage this. I've managed everything else in my life. Okay. So far. Uh, but you know, you, you start to think, okay, set a bedtime, set a nap time, here are feeding times or, or some kind of schedule or some kind of way of, of helping your kid be well-adjusted even as an infant and quickly realize, wow, um, this is difficult. And I think some parents stick to trying to have that maybe more regimented or you know how can I kind of control this situation? How can I manage the situation? Whereas I started to feel so stressed by that, and it made me uh, really stop and think, Wait a second, this isn't maybe the right approach. So I feel um, that the concepts of stoicism, where we realize that some things are in our power, some things are not. Um, but then we work within what's in our power and in our control to really make a difference. But realizing that there's some things that we can't completely manage or control is really important for parents. And I think a lot of parents still feel that you know they they are kind of in control of their kids or should be, and that they should be able to manage their their children under their direct control, which is really not only inaccurate but actually can be kind of harmful to your relationship with your child. So so that's one thing. Another thing is that um, parents get sucked into kind of the ecosphere of, for example, social media, where it's, it's all about how does this parenting choice look to other people? Mm. Or how do people think that my child is performing or is successful? And they become f- very fixated on other people's opinions, which in stoic philosophy is not important at all what's important is developing your own character your own sense of um uh, making the right judgments and uh your ability to choose well your internal motivations your moral sense, um, using your ruling center and your reason. So I think those are a couple of the things that are are really big pitfalls today. And we're also living in an era where there's a rise in what is called intensive parenting. Mm. And some people have called this helicopter parenting, where uh, people feel that they have to kind of manage every step of the way for their child. Uh, And this is not really good in the long run um, for a lot of reasons, which I could go into a little bit more detail.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on something huge here, and I almost just want to pause there and say that it it does feel right now as if parents need to make all the decisions, um, almost script the child's life, present every opportunity they possibly can. And and it's almost it seems like it's up to the parents uh, as to whether or not the child becomes successful or not. And I mean, that is a tremendous, almost ludicrous amount of pressure that we put on ourselves as
2: parents. I agree. I agree. I think it's it's harming us as parents because we feel this pressure and the relationship is somewhat, could be warped by that. And it's hard on kids because it takes away their agency. Right. And uh, some people interpret stoicism as a way to maximize a person's agency, give you the power to choose the things that you can choose and uh, try to develop that sense of Uh, what's true and what's not. And I think if we, if we try to take that away from our children and don't allow them those choices, then they will never develop the faculty of choice. Mm. They will never develop the ability to see, okay, here's what's really, uh, Here's what's right in this situation. So that's that's not good for our kids either. So I believe in trying to develop our children as in you know to to help them become independent adults. And my my kids are teens right now, and they're quite independent. I'll tell you. Um, sometimes <laughs> I wonder maybe you know maybe they should ask me a little bit more. But <laughs> I feel that right. um, it's really good in the long run because I want them to become autonomous. And I think everyone should have the right to determine their choices. It also has been shown in research that what is actually motivating for people in general and for kids is the ability to choose. Um, That's literally the strongest predictor for motivation in kids and teens.
0: How do you kind of put some of this philosophy into practice, using some of the great quotes of the Stoics, using some of, of, of the ideas they brought you? I mean, is, is it kind of just re- constantly reminding yourself the principles? Is it going back to readings? I'm just wondering how this philosophy works in action.
2: Sure. Um, well, the first thing I would say is, in Stoic philosophy, it, it's a really good ante- antidote to perfectionism, because your main goal is to make progress, so that's why you, you don't have to say, well, I'm, gonna, I'm going to become a Stoic today, and I'm going to be this perfect Stoic. In Stoicism, there's the concept of the Stoic sage, which is the person who most, you know, perfectly lives by the Stoic life philosophy. But there's really no person who who is a Stoic sage. Maybe Socrates was, maybe mm-hmm. Zeno, you know. But in, in everyday life, we're just all trying to make progress, and I, so I think that that is the first thing to keep in mind, that it's 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 not about having to be perfect in the way you practice this. I think it's in every situation you kind of think about, well, what what can I actually um, do here that that helps me make a good choice? I mean, I think of sometimes my role models one of my role models is actually Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because I've written about her as a stoic role model, because I feel that she was very. Uh, good at being able to figure out what was in her own power and be able to create change based on that. She was extremely Mm -hmm. limited as a woman who wanted to pursue law in the area she was working in. But she found inroads here and there to kind of start by creating small changes and then be in a position to really argue her own case before the Supreme Court for Issues of, uh, you know, in- increasing women's rights and increasing equality of rights in our country. So she and she showed these virtues. Another thing that stoicism um, relies on are there are four key virtues that you try to aim for. And um, these are wisdom, which is really kind of knowing what's accurate and what's true and what's not uh, justice, which is you know being fair and kind of working with other humans. Be uh, courage, being brave in any specific situation to maybe make a tough call, but the one that's wise or just and self-control, uh, exercising, you know, that sort of self-discipline to say, okay, I know how to set limits on myself. I know how to focus myself. And I think someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg is really actually an excellent example of a person who is able to do that. And we have to be able to withstand criticism, because, for example, if you pull back from intensive parenting and helicopter parenting, there will be people who criticize you that you're Mm. maybe not doing enough or not focusing enough on your kids' success in a certain way and making them do these things. Uh, I think of sometimes some of the quotes from Marcus Aurelius about this. Uh, For example, uh, I like this quote, will it make any difference to me if someone else criticizes me for actions which were just and right? Mm. It will make no difference at all. Um, that's one thing. And another thing that I like, uh, to do in my practice is to actually read some of the ancient texts and the modern texts and, and focus my mind on what are they really trying to say, interpreting them and writing about them in my blog, in the Stoic Mom blog is a form of practice for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and another quote I love from Marcus is the things you think about determine the quality of your mind. Your soul takes on the color of your thoughts. Mm. So, and then he goes on to say, you know, anywhere you can lead your life, you can lead a good one. Um, so, even in, you know, pandemic lockdowns, even when we're worried about becoming ill, when people are worried about losing their jobs, when my children are concerned about online school and maybe, you know, not having the instruction they used to have or having the interaction with their peers they used to have, we still kind of emphasize. You know, you, even within the limitations that you find yourself in, you can still um, make a good life for yourself. You can still follow these virtues. You can still make good choices. Even when you go out to the grocery store, you can still, you know, put on a mask, yeah. keep your distance, um, be, be safe, be polite. And uh, there's a lot we can still do. Mm. try to live a good life even in very difficult circumstances
0: yeah that's well said and and as you've been talking I keep thinking there's something almost Buddhist in this philosophy which is this notion that we are the product of certain causes and conditions in our life oftentimes that are out of our control and I I keep thinking of of raising these kids and, and I imagine a scenario in which a teenager maybe kind of starts to drift away in a direction that a parent may not find to be the exact right path hanging out with a different crowd or engage in activities that may not seem healthy. And I keep thinking as a parent, how do you hold this idea that, well, the world is bigger than me. This child may uh, be under the influence of powers that are not me as the parents. And how do I learn to both accept that, but also still be a parent and to provide some wisdom and to try and put them on a different path? I I can just see that being kind of a messy argument to go back and forth in one's head
2: well we do have responsibility of course as parents a, a huge responsibility and i feel that keenly i will always feel that way i think that we we always want to be guides and role models for our kids and we want to show them you know for example role model how we make our own choices you know here's why i decided to go to college instead of not it because the choices that we make do have consequences. So painting that picture for our kids can be really helpful, even from a young age. I mean, um, for instance, my daughter never wanted to wear a jacket going out and it would be 40 degrees or 35 degrees. And I'd say, you're going to get really cold. Mm. Don't you want to wear a jacket? No. So we would kind of have this back and forth discussion where I would paint the picture of, well, if you don't wear the jacket, you might start get really cold. You might start to shiver. You might actually catch a cold or get sick and then you might have to be home for the whole next week and you'll miss you know your friend's your friend's birthday or something like this and then you'll actually limit your own choices in the future because the choice you make today has a consequence tomorrow even Socrates who was really revered by the Stoics he said that he had students who went off the rails Mm. and he was a teacher who really you know he felt that he, he should be a role model, I'm sure, in some ways, and it should help them and question question their their uh, thoughts so that they could uh, develop themselves. But he said, I don't control their minds. So to some extent, we have to let them sometimes make their own mistakes. Now, of course, if if they are making mistakes that are truly dangerous or very harmful, we really, really have to step in. And I think there's always a role for guidance guidance here. To me, it's a lot of times about asking questions about and about listening to the responses i think the the more we act as good listeners the the more we'll understand what our kids are actually going through and see it from their point of view as human beings one of my goals as a parent is simply to be less anxious and more present Mm. and that's very inspired by stoicism too is that we we should be there listening to really find out what what, what are they thinking when they make a choice? What are they thinking about those friends that you said might not be a good influence? Why do they hang out with them? Um, so every, a lot of stoicism is really just questioning also your knee-jerk thoughts. And this is very related to cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. which I think can help people question why they make a choice or why they behave in a certain way. Um, what we might view as bad behavior, maybe, maybe there's an explanation for it. So I'd like to hear from my kids what that explanation is and try to understand better.
0: It's so interesting. And, and, and that is also very Socratic in a way, which is a Socratic method of simply asking questions to let the, let the listener or, or the subject kind of come to their own answer after a little bit of internal investigation. I guess that's something you're familiar with as well.
2: Exactly, I agree. And one of the little catchy phrases I came up with was, um, stop, drop and question your impressions. Mm. Uh, In stoicism, impressions are, it's kind of the, the sense data you're getting from the world and how you think of it. And I think I consider it to be like knee jerk reactions to what's happening around you. And I mean, I, you know, have experienced this many times myself. I mean, even at my daughter's campus, I see another mom, I wave to her, hi there. She doesn't wave back. I think, wow, that person must really dislike me or she's decided not to be my friend anymore. All right. kinds of thoughts pop into my head. But actually, um, when I questioned it more and, and went back, I realized, oh, she wasn't wearing her glasses. So mm-hmm. she probably never saw me. So that's just a simple example. But yeah. I think all of these kinds of things, I mean, even with kids, for example, uh, my daughter, you know, she used to go to a, a park with a friend of hers and they would cover their feet and their legs with sand. And this was their main activity. And my, my other daughter took part as well. And then at one point, uh, the other girl decided it'd be really fun to throw sand and throw it at my daughter's face. And so, (laughs) you know, next minute I I hear screaming and I come over and my daughter had sand in her eye. Mm -hmm. And so we had a kind of a long conversation about, um, is this what friends do? Is it, you know, is this actually fun for you to hang out with this person? And why did you, why do you think she did it? And so having them learn to also think about how other people behave and other people act is, is pretty helpful.
0: Yeah. Well, we've talked about your life as a parent. I just wonder, too, if stoicism has helped you as a person or or in your marriage or in just other, other components of your life.
2: Oh, absolutely. It, you know, has helped me to let go of a lot of the things that used to just really stress me or bother me. And I'm still working on it. This is a lot of these things are still aspirational for me. But I think this idea of not having to manage and control everything and not feeling that guilt or that responsibility for, well, what if something goes wrong? Um, We can't control how things turn out in many ways. And I guess in the ancient times, they believed in fortune or fortuna and there's just a lot of kind of luck and uh situations that we simply can't manage and that are tough and very difficult but what we can control is our own emotional response to them and I think that that's critical. Uh, the other thing is kind of the common humanity concept that's promoted in Stoicism is is very important to me. Um, I serve as a volunteer with Girl Scouts. I try to my children volunteer as a family. We try to support causes we care about. This this idea that you know we're all actually humans and and we're all just doing the best we can to uh, promote human flourishing in ourselves and others. That's really the goal: human flourishing. Mm. By not trying to obsess about all these externals, stoicism would tell you that externals are things that, we, that are outside our control, but that most people spend most of their life focusing on. For example, wealth, uh, physical beauty, uh, reputation, fame, status, power. For the Stoics, the ancient Stoics, these things are not, should not be our goals. Instead, our goal should be developing our character and our ability to choose well, make sound judgments, grow, and be pro-social to actually help other human beings, because that's what humans were designed to do naturally. So uh, I, I think that it's helped me a huge amount to become a more balanced human. And it helps for confidence, too, because I think you kind of start to realize that um, well, I may have made a mistake, but I can still look at the truth. I can re-examine my impressions and move forward. It's very—it's a very um, live in the present moment philosophy. And one thing I'll just add also is this whole issue that we have with modern distraction from screens and from technology. The the ancients really worried about that too. Um, and I one of the quotes I really like from Marcus Aurelius, um, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but but he he was worried about his being distracted by things like new books you know we're worried about facebook he was worried about new books and he really wanted to focus and clear his mind on things that truly mattered about his judgments and choices instead of maybe some new fad or trendy idea so so he he wrote a lot a lot about this and one thing he said was concentrate every minute on doing what's in front of you with precise and genuine seriousness Tenderly willingly with justice and unfreeing yourself from other distractions. Yes, you can if you do everything as if it were the last thing you're doing in your life and stop being aimless. Stop letting your emotions override what your mind tells you. Stop being hypocritical, self-centered, and irritable. So to me, that kind of sums it up really, really well. Um, it's uh, <laughs> uh, a, a challenge to us all.
1: Mm.
0: Love that last line and and really enjoyed this conversation. Um, Meredith alexander Coons, thank you so much for your time and joining us on Life Examined. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you.
0: Once again, that was Meredith alexander Coons. She's the author of The Stoic Mom. It's a blog that focuses on how stoic philosophy and mindful approaches can change a parent's life. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.